0: Hello. Hi. I'm Kelly Harlock. And I'm Sasha Kelly. And you're listening to That Classical Podcast. Welcome, everybody, once again. And if it's your first time, lovely to
1: have you. Uh, So since we're recording this episode in Women's History Month, Mm -hmm. and we we just love talking about women Mm -hmm. who shaped the classical world. uh, Today, we're talking about two more lovely ladies who completely nailed it, absolutely nailed it, but didn't get and arguably still do not get the attention they rightly deserve for their amazing works so sasha yeah just let's blast off blast
0: off from Australia who are you talking about first I mean blast off from Australia but I'm talking about an English woman so <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> like get your geography in order I know it's well, very it's, confusing it's technically <laughs> it's from Australia but it's mm. about the UK but you it know. is but you know goodness knows she was incredible her name was Ethel Smythe um and okay. I, I mean I'm standing by with a 60 second bio I mean I'm not I'm sure Standing by. let's just just jump into it all right um, Are you ready? I'm ready. Are you steady? Ugh. Okay. Ethel Smythe was born on the 22nd of April 1858. While this was her actual birthday for most of her life she celebrated it on the 23rd of April. She lived at Frimhurst near family green. She first studied privately with Alexander Ewig when she was 17 who introduced her to the music of Berlioz and Wagner. Her father was particularly unsupportive of her having a career in music but after a major fight she headed off to Leipzig where she studied at the conservatory before studying privately. She met Dvorak, Grieg, Tchaikovsky, Clara Schumann and Brahms. She returned to England in the 1890s and achieved several high-profile premieres of orchestral and choral works but then she decided to focus on opera she had a number of premieres and her 1902 opera Devalde was the first ever opera written by a woman at the Met besides being a prolific composer she was a well-known suffragette author friend and possibly lover including among others Emile Pankhurst and Virginia Woolf on her 75th birthday in 1934 her work was in a celebrated in a festival heartbreakingly she was completely deaf and could not hear her own music she died in 1944 <sighs> the end
1: that was exactly a minute and i'm so sorry because i was so entranced by what you were saying (laughs) that i didn't even give you the warning i I mean where where does one
0: even begin where do you start okay so first of all she changed now i didn't fact check this so maybe a listener can but um she changed her birthday date because she liked the association with shakespeare so she just changed her birthday because like she wanted to To
1: Shakespeare's birthday yeah
0: well I assume it must be Shakespeare's birthday was the 23rd of April but someone might I mean I could probably check that with a google search but I didn't um let's just assume it's correct let's assume it's correct my other favorite fact is that her dad was very anti her being a musician. And she said, "Classic. we knew no artist. And to him, the word simply meant people who were out to break the Ten Commandments. It's no exaggeration to say that the life I propose to lead some somehow seemed to him the equivalent of going on the streets but her reaction was just as obstinate so instead of just like throwing a normal temper tantrum as most 17 year olds would she refused to speak for days so she did silent treatment I mean that's a classic
1: that is a temper tantrum but that is but
0: then she did a hunger strike so she just didn't okay. eat until yep. her parents were like, okay, you can go study music, which I was like, you know, even at my worst moments as a 16 year old, if dad was like, oh, there's yeah. a lamb roast. I was like, mm, okay.
1: I'll take that. I'll
0: come down to this.
1: Do you think, I'm exactly the same, by the way.
0: What kind of time was this? What year was this? Um, so if she- oh, my, my, my maths is terrible, it must have been around 75, 1875. Five. okay
1: wow so she was doing the whole like hunger strike thing before the suffragettes oh, really even like got yeah. onto
0: that so that actually is a suffragette so she was a member like quite an active member in the early 1900s as a suffragette and she was arrested awesome. alongside pankhurst for militant suffragism and mm-hmm. was in jail in holloway prison for two months and beecham <gasps> went to visit her thomas thomas beecham that's the conductor right right so he went to visit her and he found her conducting from her window with a toothbrush, <laughs> leading all her fellow prisoners in a rendition of the March of the Women, which is like the ode that she wrote um, as an anthem for the suffragettes. Um, I love that because some people in prison turn their toothbrush into a shank.
1: Yeah, exactly. But, um, uh, <laughs> Ethel turned it into a Baton? Baton? battle yeah and
0: not like an aggressive um one either but it is said that like the reason that she went deaf so early later in life or like had a lot of health problems was from her stint in prison like obviously you, you are thinking about like I can't imagine that a prison in the early 1900s would have been a place where like you were being treated Especially well. I it's, mean, it's not going to be the Ritz, is it? I mean, no. I mean, it isn't now, even, but, you know, obviously back not. then it would have been, I imagine, even worse conditions. So she's really interesting. I've read a lot about her and I really, I feel like I only scratched the surface. She was. Mm-hmm. Also, a diarist, like, prolifically wrote her own records, and I published, like, seven memoirs. I might have got that number Whoa. wrong, but it was definitely – it's okay. more than three. Like, you know, Prime Minister's write theirs in three, and she wrote upwards of that, so – that's like one every few years, I though. know. That's and, intense. Yeah, and the, the other fact that I thought was really interesting but isn't necessarily an Ethel-specific fact, but I mentioned that her 1902 opera, Devald, was the first ever opera to be staged at the Met. That uh-huh. remained true until 2016 when Sariaho had a work commissioned and premiered. So the wow. Finnish... The modern Finnish composer who's brilliant, but that's you know well over a hundred years that that's incredible. They didn't have any other operas written by a woman, so do we
1: think that other women wrote operas that they wanted to get staged at the Met, but the Met didn't play stage them? as is- well,
0: absolutely, because um, I mean Ethel alone wrote. I mean, I read about four different operas that she wrote. So okay, it's incredible. not like she just wrote one and was like, there you go.
1: Yeah, there <laughs> it is. There it is. <laughs> one and done.
0: <laughs> <laughs> which I think brings us perfectly to the first piece that I want to play for you. Great. Which I'll launch straight into, shall I? Um, It's called The Wreckers. Hmm. And we're going to hear The Overture because that like actually, sadly, that's the only thing I can find of the opera recorded. So what, there's no arias or anything? No, well, there are, but I just can't find a recording. And I'm sure there's one out there, so if you've got one, please Mm. send it to me because I really want to listen to it because actually I read the plot and, you know, we've talked at length about other opera plots, haven't we? Specifically <laughs> at length, at length. Um, yeah. and this one I read and was like, "This sounds good." So basically, okay. it's set in the Cornish seaside, and it's about mm-hmm. um, this kind of mythology of how there were towns along the coast that used to lure ships to to crash, crash, mm-hmm. to like mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. get mm-hmm. wrecked, and then basically the local people would sack the the wreck and like steal the loot, so this particular opera is about like how this one town it's it's very like Benjamin Britten Billy Budd esque like. The whole town, there's like some love stories. I'm not going to tell you the whole plot because actually like I can't actually play you any of the Arias. So I feel like I can't really set the scene, but basically someone in the town is actually setting bonfires so that ships don't crash anymore. And so everyone in the town has like agreed to be looting these ships and they're trying to work out who this person is. And, you know, oh. there's a priest and there's like a, a wife who's cheating on him. And then there's like a bit of unrequited love. And then there's like a tragic ending where the two lovers who've like betrayed everyone get locked in a cave and like slowly drown to death. Like, you know, it's got all oh. the classic opera Whoa tropes. There, Pickle.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> up until the drowning to death,
0: I was going to say this could be a really <sighs> fantastic BBC costume <laughs> drama that I would watch. Oh. Um, you know. I mean, yeah, it's a bit like Aida when like right at the end, sorry, I'm spoiling Aida for everyone too, but like right at the end, they like put them in the tomb and they just roll the rock in front and they're like, you will die together. Like it's got that kind of aspect to Mm. it. So she really wanted, um, Ethel Smythe really wanted to have it premiered in the French speaking world, but like could not get that to work. So she went back to her personal contacts in Leipzig where obviously she'd been studying as a young woman and she finally got it to be agreed to be premiered in a German translation that she wasn't particularly happy with. So they started rehearsing and this conductor, Richard Hagel, in the third act of her opera, like insisted on all these cuts being made to the plot. And it had a really successful opening night. It received 16 curtain calls and like the (laughs) critics really loved it. But Smythe was like, no, really, like you have to reinstate all those cut bits. Like you, it just doesn't make sense. Right. And the conductor refused. So what she did is like the next night she just went into the pit and took all the music scores. And like, obviously this is before the days of photocopying. So she just collected all the schools, all the parts and just left town and just went <gasps> to Prague. <laughs> no she <laughs> yeah. didn't yeah which yes, i just ethel. like oh, love yes yeah oh a huge respect to ethel I know, but then like this is where i'm like mm, but were you the problem ethel because like she then took the performance right. to prague where she was like well they'll be better here and then she was like oh it was under rehearsed and it was a disaster and it's like well right. mm, oh, ethel. who's the common okay. denominator here but anyway But
1: maybe she just, you know, she was having a bit of a crisis. She didn't have the self-confidence to to almost like accept that maybe it wasn't a perfect
0: opera first time around. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? The real tragedy, I think, is that in 1907, Gustav Mahler wanted to premiere it at the Vienna State Opera, which would have been a massive deal. Huge. Huge. And she said of him, he was far, this is a quote, he was far and away the finest conductor I ever knew with the most all-embracing musical instinct. And it is one of the small tragedies of my life that just when he was considering the wreckers at the Vienna, they drove him from office. So that was one that around the time that um Marla left his job. So hers was just oh, like yeah. one of the operas that got like kind of sacrificed. Forgotten. Yeah. That's so yeah. tragic. And isn't I it? just think Honestly. about like A lot of the criticism, so I'm jumping ahead here, but a lot of the criticism that she got was that everyone was always obsessed with her gender. So they'd be like, oh, it's kind of like, like she'd get criticized a lot for being too feminine for being a proper composer. But then when she tried to write like delicate little parlor pieces, they'd be like, oh, it's too masculine. It's way too aggressive. And then when you for listen God's to it, like, sake. honestly, I challenge you to listen to this and be like, yes, a woman wrote this piece. Like it does not sound. You can't tell. You can't you, you possibly tell. cannot tell. tell. It, that's honestly ridiculous. Yeah. And so I feel like um, there was lots of stories about how like she only dressed in tweed suits and like, you know she was a very oh my
1: god she did she like pioneer the power suit yeah. and the shank yeah
0: and like from what i can read about her she obviously like really took a lot of pride in like standing among the men do you know what i mean like it was a real That's yeah. yeah and yeah. so i wonder whether like it... she's just born out of her time you know like at any other time yeah. maybe she wouldn't have suffered the same kind of like really terrible critiques like George Bernard Shaw wrote really like was like oh it's pretty good for a woman when she first was writing stuff and then like you know 20 years later after she'd like been around for so long he was like oh it's great I love it so people obviously like came around to her once she'd Mm -hmm. really been there and she had massive supporters like she met all these famous composers Thomas Beecham was a massive supporter of ours But I just feel like, like a lot of composers, like a lot of artistic types, she just sounds like she was a bit of a challenging person. And she shouldn't have been punished for that because of the fact that she was a woman. That's what I want to say. Yeah. Well, shall we listen to it? I can't wait to hear it. Yes. I'm so excited.
1: I'm actually, for once in my life, I'm speechless. Yeah. I have never, and I, this is, honestly, I'm not exaggerating here. I've never got goosebumps from an overture before. Mm. <laughs> but I, I think, to be honest, probably because of the context that you gave mm. and knowing that she was this kind of trailblazer and she just rocked a tweed suit in a mm. room of men and, like, you know, took her manuscripts and left town. I just feel like that is an incredible piece of mm. music and the fact that people could possibly say that was like too feminine or that it was definitely written by women is complete bollocks sorry pardon my non-french but like that is complete bollocks because that is a exciting that is everything an overture should be i know and actually makes you sit forward in your seat it does and like get excited about
0: what's coming and god that's amazing i'm just like ethel you absolutely nailed it. <laughs> absolutely nailed it. And you know what I found really interesting is that there's a lot of commentary that says that like she wrote the best English opera between um, Purcell and Britain, which is quite famously like wow. Real opera, okay. wow. Yeah, real opera aficionados yeah. say that like Britain was the heir apparent in, in terms of English opera and really yeah. turned it around. But also yeah. like I reckon there's a lot that you can hear in this like that sounds mm. like the British seaside, you know, because it's just so eerie and yeah. it's so foreboding. Yeah. And yeah. and then also, like, I know we can only play a tiny little clip, but um, – go and listen to it because there's this gorgeous second theme that the strings come oh. in with. And it's like just when Mm-mm. you kind of go, oh, okay, right, we're all in for a rollicking good time at the opera where there's lots of ocean <laughs> and the yeah. and everyone's going to die yeah. on the shipwreck. You're like, oh, she really knew how to write this gorgeous romantic theme. So, um, yeah, Incredible. I just mm. – I came away from it being like, why isn't this in the repertoire? I don't get it. And and where's mm. the rest of it? Because I want to hear it. <laughs> that classical podcast. So the second piece we're going to discuss is her string quartet in E minor, which was published mm. by Universal Edition of Vienna in 1914. And I say much later in her career because she actually wrote a lot of um, chamber music when she was studying in Leipzig, like in the mm-hmm. 80s. And so this was like kind of a turn back to a chamber style of writing while she was really in this operatic, choral, orchestral hmm. world.
1: Um, and is this the stuff that people said was way too masculine? Yeah. Well, <laughs> because this is she was what trying I... to write chamber
0: music. Yes, yeah, this is what I found really interesting about this, is that I think this piece is just marvellous. I think it's really hmm. gorgeous. And mm-hmm. I listened to like most of it today, and I was just struck by how much I didn't, you know, sometimes you listen to stuff by composers and you're like, yeah, I'm doing this for research for the podcast and, you know, right, I've kind of right. listened to a bit and blah, blah, blah. But I've, I genuinely mm-hmm. sat there and listened to like hours of her music today. But what I want to mm-hmm. say is like think about 1914 and if you're like a music student, this might be easier for you to grasp. But like Stravinsky has just written Rite of Spring in, the mo- in like a couple of years and Schoenberg yeah. is running around – Saying that the old style of music of writing is over. And so Dad. she writes this gorgeous, luscious, what I read a quote today that said it's almost a historical study of old masters of the genre of a string quartet. <laughs> oh. And so it's like, of course they're going to say, they're not gonna go, oh, this is an academic reinterpretation of like how a string quartet's gonna sound. They're gonna be like, this is because you're a woman. And this sounds like this because you're a woman. And so this same author that I was reading today was saying that actually, if you listen to it now, with like almost a well, over a hundred years on this piece, you can hear early Shostakovich. Um, you can uh-huh. hear kind of Korn gold and Strauss but I just really want you to kind of think about when you're listening to it just how much she was kind of punished for what the fashion was at the mm. time rather than a recognition of the fact that she tried to write this as uh-huh. a reassembly of everything that she knew about the string quartet and like completely separate to what was fashionable and what was cool and rather just like what she wanted to write so Yeah, there's not really much more information that I could find aside from this, but I think the work stands for itself. Um, I think any of the movements are great, but I want to play the third movement for us today.
1: I'm sad we couldn't listen to the whole thing, to be honest. I don't know what's with me today. I'm just so moved <laughs> by her music. Like mm. that, that is uh just beautiful. And as you were saying, like the fact that she the fact that she chose to just write that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> at a time when everyone was trying to be really kooky and and new. Um and she was just like, you know what? I'm gonna smash this. Yeah. And she clearly did. And uh, yeah i know you mentioned to me just now that it like reminded you of dvorak and and the fact that like Dvorjak's string quartets are are so widely played mm. but i've never heard this before in my life and i i, I won't go too into it well, but
0: that, i was just gonna say like i feel like i've fallen victim to it myself as like a university student mm. it's like i was always under this impression that the women who'd written music were the, who you knew were the anomalies like the Clara Schumann's and the like Fanny Mendelssohn's and Nadia Boulanger's were like the ones who it's like, Oh, well no one can really explain where they came from. But what this really Uh made me realize is that like, she's not writing something that really sticks out that much, you know, Elgar's writing really lyrical melodic stuff around this time. So, I just feel like whatever criticism she got wasn't taking her seriously within her own canon. It was, exactly. yeah, and it's only a hundred years later when you can really look at like the arc of how someone wrote that you can actually appreciate. I think also we can't separate her experience of being a suffragette and her experience of being an artist Mm -hmm. and her you know Mm -hmm. hanging out with other artists like you know being a lesbian like there's obviously different experiences that she would have had that would have been very very hard to separate from her art but i'm just really glad that i've discovered her now and that we're talking about her because i just think there's a whole bunch of work there that i hope leading quartets go out and record because i'd really like to hear it done justice that classical podcast
1: so the composer i want to talk about is florence beatrice price florence price um who just she's gonna knock your knock your absolute socks off and I'm i think so we excited. should just launch launch into uh a 60 seconds
0: are you ready yeah are you steady mm-hmm. go
1: Florence was born, Florence Beatrice Smith, in April 1887 in Little Rock, Arkansas. Her dad was the only African-American dentist in the city and her mother was a music, music teacher who began her musical training. Florence was a gifted musician and had already published her first composition, age 11. Studied music in Boston, majored in piano and organ, claimed to have Mexican heritage to avoid the racial discrimination against African-Americans at the time, wrote her first string trio and her first symphony before she graduated with honors in 1906, returned to Arkansas to teach music, moved to Atlanta, Georgia in 1910, became head of music department at Clark Atlanta University. In 1912, married lawyer Thomas J. Price, moved back to Arkansas, but after experiencing the horrendous racial crimes, there, left for good and settled in Chicago. Chicago, continued writing music and studying composition, orchestration, organ and languages and liberal arts subjects. Divorced husband in 1931, became a single mother to her two daughters, worked as an organist for silent film screenings and composed songs for radio ads under a fake name. Began gaining national recognition. 1932 won first prize at the Rodman Wanamaker Contest in, with her symphony in E minor. Chicago Symphony Orchestra premiered Symphony in 1933, the first symphony by an African-American woman ever to be played by a major orchestra. Ten Incredible. Florence wrote, Florence wrote over 300 works in her lifetime and in 1940, she was inducted into the American Society of Composers, Authors and Publishers for her work as a composer. June 3rd 53 she died from a stroke in chicago illinois age 66
0: <gasps> do you know what i gave you an extra two seconds because women have had enough thank hardships <laughs> in their life kelly exactly. and we deserve the
1: extra time exactly <laughs> she deserves the floor for two more <laughs> seconds at the very very least exactly um, that's
0: what i believe and that's what you got so good exactly Great. thank you
1: but i mean florence wow i mean she was just incredible she she wrote over 300 works including you know orchestral works chamber works art songs she wrote works for violin she wrote organ anthems she wrote piano pieces spiritual arrangements she wrote four symphonies three piano concertos and a couple of violin concertos. And the great thing about Florence as well is she she was trained in like the traditional kind of European Mm -hmm. composition and counterpoint, but she was passionate. She loved featuring and celebrating African-American melodies and rhythms. Mm. And she was also um, a a sort of really strong Christian. So she was inspired by the African-American church and all her arrangements. But aside from her musical achievements, she was just this unstoppable strong woman who who went through some terrible hardships like just you know first and foremost the racism that she faced on a daily basis must mm. have been unimaginably difficult mm. the fact she had to pose i don't know if you, you heard this in the 60 second but she had to pose as as a mexican woman to get through music school
0: i know i i heard that and i just thought like you know just the fact that like every single sentence you did in that 60 second bio just was like that is a whole, you know, our conversation right. of like, what can we unpack right. what that actually means? You know, I just felt like, I mean, obviously we're going to do as much justice as we can in our in our right. podcast, but like what a fascinating yeah. woman and what unimaginable challenges she must have had to just like Absolutely. still be a name today that I know definitely I've seen. Um, right. I mean, as we know, it's like it's bad enough to
1: be a woman trying to make it mm. – um, you know, in classical music, in music generally, but like the the terrible racism that she dealt with, especially living in the Deep South mm. as well, at such a horrific, horrific time. And her first husband was abusive, and you know she left him to be single mother of of two children, and she had to make ends meet by playing for these silent movies. And she was mm. unwell towards the end of her life, which probably prevented her from performing. Um, so she had all these struggles. And, you know, sadly, after she died, as is the story with so many, too many women composers, her work was largely forgotten and it was overshadowed by, you know, newer musical styles and her male contemporaries. But, you know, fortunately, in recent years, more women composers, more African-American composers have gained attention for their works. And in 2009, actually, a bunch of Florence's manuscripts were discovered uh, in a house in Illinois, which I will go into later because I'm going to talk about one of the pieces that was discovered in 2009 but look, the first piece I mm-hmm. chose I had to choose it it's been one of my favorite really like feel good mm. classical pieces for a while. And one of my favourite Florence, Florence moments. It's called Dances in the Cane Breaks. And FYI, if you like me, are sitting <laughs> here going, What are cane breaks? <laughs> um, it, it it basically refers to uh, the tall grass of like the southern United States, like growing in thickets. So, like mm. a thicket, a dense thicket of canes. Mm. And remember, Florence, Florence felt really strongly about reflecting, you know, the black American experience in mm. her works. And you know, from right from the days of slavery through to the first half of the 20th century. So mm-hmm. cane breaks were common in the Deep South, right? And in pre-Civil War days, when the economy in the Deep South hugely depended on growing and processing cotton, these kind of vast thickets of cane breaks had to be cleared before the land could be cultivated for planting the cotton. Mm. So teams of slaves would spend days and days laboring, clearing the land. But at night, they would sing and dance amongst the canebrakes. And that is um, what apparently the inspiration for this, this piece is. So there you go. That is, that is the context of the piece. Wow. Um, Now, Florence originally composed this as a suite for piano in 1953, which is sadly just a few months before she passed away. But after Florence's death in 1953, the amazing brilliant William Grant still aka Dean of African American composers who we will definitely definitely talk oh, about in the podcast. Music his music is oh, extraordinary. It's stunning it's honestly so stunning <sighs> I, I love his his work mm. so but he he came along and actually I I couldn't find like a link between them I don't know what their relationship was but mm-hmm. you know who who's to who's to say but William Grant still basically transformed these three movements of Dances in the cane breaks into an orchestral suite, which is wow. what we'll be hearing today. So yeah, I mean, basically I just love this piece. It's, it's the first movement here is called Nimble Feet. Great. Uh, it never, you know, never fails to make me smile. It's got your typical kind of rag accompaniment, cheeky melody, great kind of Scott Joplin vibes. Let's just take
0: a listen. Let's do it. I'm excited. So, oh, Sasha, thoughts mm. on Dancing in the Canebrakes? I love it. It's exactly what you said. It brings a smile to my face. Um, right. It's just so colorful. And yeah. there's yeah. something about it. I mean, maybe because I've listened to WG Still's works. You know, when you're like, mm-hmm. find it very mm-hmm. hard to separate what you recognize as like their signature or not. Okay. But I just feel like there's a lot in that that's joyful and melodic and just as deserving of being on a platform as hundreds of other things that I've heard so I, I feel it's yeah
1: it's a great piece and as you yeah. say it's full of color it's full of joy like why wouldn't you put it in your playlist for like happy classical music yeah. or just general happy music
0: like it's <laughs> it's great I was just gonna say I know after we did that our uh, South American episode We got so many emails and Instagram messages and tweets of like sunsets and images and vistas of like what life is like in South America because Hmm. it meant so much more to our listeners who – we're listening to us talk about these pieces from that part of the world. So I just want to invite anyone listening to the States, um, to please email us and get in contact on Instagram because we want to know what your experience is listening and reflecting on this music. Um, cause that really brings an extra dimension to us.
1: Classical podcast. Next, I want to talk about Florence's violin concerto number one, Numero Uno. And this, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it was one of the pieces that was only discovered, can you believe it, in 2009, uh, which was actually alongside her violin concerto number two. And weirdly, I found when I was doing my research that the violin concerto number two is a bit more widely known. I don't know whether it's because it's just in one movement. Um, wow. But basically, both of them are great. Go <laughs> and listen to the yeah. second one as well. But the, the story of how these these manuscripts were found is pretty interesting. This couple basically were, were renovating a dilapidated, like a vandalized house in Illinois mm. in, in 2009. It genuinely had like a tree going through the roof and everything. And it had, had been vandalized but pretty much untouched. Clearly, clearly for decades because they kept seeing this name, Florence Price, Florence Price, on sort of stacks of paper everywhere and it turned out to be all these manuscripts and as much as that is amazing it's also really sad to think that so much of her work was only in manuscript form before she died because the implication of that is that she she couldn't get it published yeah so like you know none none of it was published it was
0: all kind of yeah it also makes me i mean a bit like the Marla story that i told you just makes right. me feel like how much of our lives are based on luck. And and the fact that it's even more pertinent when there's like not that many women composers that we celebrate as right. part of the canon. Yeah. And the fact yeah. that like Ethel Smart's career might've taken a different turn if one of the greatest composers mm-hmm. of the last 100 years right. had had like something to do with her work and being able to premiere and maybe that would have taken it on a different path. But the same token, right. it's like, the fact that we've got these works of Florence Price's is only because the people who are renovating this house obviously picked <laughs> up these papers and were like, maybe we should Google her name. Like, you know, it yeah, just right, exactly. blows my mind yeah. that like, yeah. if someone who didn't care about music or wasn't curious or didn't have just two seconds of thinking yeah, like, yeah. Huh.
1: But I think because I'm I'm pretty sure, yeah, because they they saw her name everywhere, and it was it was an article from the local paper, I think, that I read, and they contacted the local music college, I think, and and it kind of spread from there, mm. and then people kind of tried to slightly rework the the music, and and it was, things were premiered, and it, yeah, everything was launched off of this kind of random wow. find by these people, so. Um, Sadly, you know, she, she composed this in 1939, but as I understand it, it was never performed, you know, I guess, because it was never published, which is a real, just a huge shame because I think it's, it's absolutely beautiful. Mm. I love the second movement. I've, what I love is that I've I've seen this movement described as having, quote, the stillness of an Arkansas night, which I love. Mm. And other people say it's kind of like a spiritual uh, lullaby. And you know what? I just feel like everyone take a minute, take a minute sit back take a breath let's listen because you're really going to enjoy this I just love how she makes that violin sing. What What did you think of it, Sasha?
0: Yeah, so I've been thinking about how to, how to address this because my instant reaction, because I always love referring to something else when I'm listening to a piece for the first time, like just to like kind of catalog it in my mind. I think humans like to uh-huh. label and that's like a, a right. natural thing. But I kept thinking about Gershwin. And then what this right. challenges me with is actually like, Maybe I should have been thinking how much Gershwin stole from Florence Price and it's actually just <laughs> right. the order of my life has yeah. been that I've mm-hmm. been exposed to Gershwin first and that mm-hmm. this woman who wrote this extraordinary music mm. wasn't given the same platform. You know, it it's just really yeah. gives completely, me that kind of completely. opportunity to go, why yeah. do I think? Why do you think Gershwin instead of Florence
1: Price? Yeah, I mean it's it's – it's really lovely it's i want to listen to it Mm. every day right now and i didn't i i only just found this and i'm just so upset that it was you know it was only recorded a couple of years ago it was only discovered in 2009 Mm. and the world hasn't the world has had gershwin Mm. but it hasn't had this so it's just let's let's all just i mean just take time and and listen to it because it's so worth it and she suffered so much and she struggled so much but she just wrote it was like it sounds like this the person who wrote this didn't have a care in the world oh <laughs> that's gonna what say, it genuinely sounds that's like that's really struck me and that's incredible.
0: as well is that like both yeah. of these pieces you've played kelly are so joyous and so I know. like uplifting I know. and just really what yeah. the best of what art can be as well what music can be completely yeah
1: and you know what her florence price's symphonies her piano pieces she actually wrote some amazing songs and leontine price um sings beautifully Mm. um, uh, Florence Price's songs but I just urge you I just compel you Mm. to go and explore um, the works of Florence Price and Ethel Smythe as well you know like these are two women who deserved better. They deserved better from the classical world and they still deserve better. They still deserve more airtime and, and, you know, more more performances. And, yeah, I'm just – we're so happy that we could talk about them today. And, uh, yeah, thanks.
0: That classical podcast. So, Kelly, that brings us to the end of this episode on two powerhouse composers. (laughs) And I'm going to say – I am flabbergasted, flummoxed, and floored Mm -hmm. by the three famous Fs, um, (laughs) by the talent that I I really like, you know, we did say we've done women's episodes before. We did say, oh, it's women's history month. So it's probably time to do another one. Like, and obviously you and I both are acutely aware being women in the classical Mm. music industry. Um, of the importance of researching and platforming women but i i found two new favorites i think that that's Me my too. feeling and,
1: yeah you know like i i feel like we will devote more time to women uh on this podcast and we need to do that and yeah i mean we would love to know obviously we'll go and do our research too but we'd love to know from from you the listeners Who you want to hear about and uh, do any women inspire you um, in classical music, in music generally. But, (laughs) um, you know, we want to, we don't want this to just be a a Women's History Month, you know, moment. We want Mm. it to be woven throughout our monthly episodes. So, yeah, let us know. And. If you want to reach us, you can catch us on Instagram. We're at That Classical Insta. We're on Twitter, That Classical. You can find us on Facebook. Just type in <laughs> That Classical Podcast and hope for the best. We also have an email, That Classical Email at gmail.com. And uh, we have a, a Spotify
0: playlist if you want to hear any of the music from the show. And if you love the show, what makes a world of difference to us and really warms the cockles of our hearts is if you go to your podcast player and you Rate us and review us. Five stars is always appreciated. Um, <laughs> but plus, yeah. you know, you've got to be truthful. You've got to be honest. But um, we do Truth read yourself, all your reviews, yeah. and it does help other people find us. So um, if you're passionate about that classical in your life, then that's the best way shout to it. share. Yeah.
1: shout, it from, the shout it from the
0: rooftops. Exactly.
1: Mm. Um, but otherwise. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll see you next time. Kelly, what a joy it
0: is sharing these airwaves with you.